It's just, God, you are beautiful. You are beautiful in the midst of a world that has turned ugly on you. You are beautiful in the midst of people who turn our backs on you. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship, whether people are here live or watching online. God, because we know that you set divine appointments with your people, and with those divine appointments, God, you you issued divine invitations. And God, we, we are invited today to look at your word and to understand how things that happened 2,000 years ago, a part of world history, are very much relevant and meaningful for us today. So in the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds, that we would be open and willing to hear and to receive whatever it is that you have for us, God. We give you this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to talk... uh, For the next few weeks after the miracle of the resurrection about a God who does things that are impossible. We think that we've got the world pretty well figured out, but God is in the habit of doing things that we think are impossible. You might think April 16th, it's impossible to have a snowstorm. That's not a miracle. It's just kind of puts global warming on its ear. God is doing impossible stuff, or at least impossible for us, all the time. And so often we we don't even notice it, we don't see it, we're not looking for it. And what we end up doing is we write it off as coincidence, when what it is, is the living power of God at work in our world. And so we're going to look at some examples, one today from the New Testament, next couple weeks from the Old Testament. We're going to look at some from different times in history where God has done what just seems to be impossible but it's presented in His Word as history. Not as parable or story or fable, but as truth. And so today, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to Matthew 14, starting in the 22nd, or excuse me, starting the 22nd verse of Matthew 14. It's Jesus walking on the water, but in addition to that, it's Peter walking on the water. But really what the text is about is the presence of Jesus in that moment. So it says immediately after this, the immediately is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has just gone from this, this low sloping hill on the outskirts uh, just above the Sea of Galilee and He's come down to the water. He has just fed the 5,000. More on that in a moment. And Jesus insisted that His disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while He sent the people home. Immediately is an interesting word to use along with insisting. Suddenly it sounds like bossy Jesus. Immediately he sends the disciples to get back into the boat and cross the other side of the lake to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Why is that? We'll look at that in a second. What's been going on? Well, people have just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. It's been a long day. 5,000 is the number of men. It's women and kids. It's 10, 12, 15,000. We don't really know. But they counted the men in Jesus' day. Today we would have counted everybody. It been a lot more. And it says that the people who were there to hear Jesus' teaching gathered and nobody thought about food. They didn't think they'd be there that long. And the disciples said the people are getting hungry. And so they come to Jesus and say, what do we do? He says, well, go see what we got. One of them comes up and says, well, there's a boy here that has five loaves and two fishes. Five hot dog buns and two sunnies. And it says that everybody ate until they were full and twelve baskets were collected by the disciples. That is doing the impossible. 
There's no other explanation for it. It wasn't like people had brought all kinds of baskets and coolers full of food. All they had was that little bit. And Jesus did this incredible miracle. And now it's at the end of the day and it's time to to send these people away, even though they wanted more. They wanted more of Him. He had done the impossible right before their eyes. He is Israel's number one hero. Everybody wants a little more of Jesus. John writes in his Gospel, 6th chapter, 15th verse, he said, when Jesus saw that they were ready to force Him to be their king, He slipped away into the hills by Himself. The people had decided they'd seen enough. This guy could do the kind of stuff that a king does. This is the one we've been waiting for. They wanted to make Him king. And Jesus knew it, but Jesus also knew this was ministry time. This wasn't time for Him to be a king. That day would come later. And so he tells the disciples to get into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. Verse 23. After sending them home, he went up in the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Jesus himself dismisses the people and says, it's time to go home. Why? Bible says because he needed time to pray. You'd think after a, a long day and a big miracle, he would have needed a good rest. For Jesus, a good rest was time alone with God. So he directs the disciples to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. The reason for that was because he knew that there wouldn't be any crowds of Jewish people there looking for him. That was the the Gentile side of the lake. If you understand the geography at all of Israel, the, uh, the region of the Galilee is to the north of the lake, and the other side is everything to the east. The Jews weren't there. Disciples weren't real excited about going there. They wouldn't have been happy about going to the other side of the lake away from their people. They wouldn't have been thrilled, all of them together in one flat-bottomed fishing boat out in the middle of this lake that was so famous for sudden squalls and dangerous windstorms. It was late at night and Jesus sends them off to the other side without any other instructions. Verse 24, Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy winds. Jesus goes up in the hills by Himself to pray. He needs some time alone. He needs to spend time with God. can't imagine what it would have been like for Him with a crowd of 10, 12, 15,000 people all wanting something from Him. He needed to rest. But He sends the disciples out in this boat to the other side of the lake. Now, some of them were fishermen. They knew these boats well. They knew what they were like. They knew what they were capable of and what they weren't. He sends them out and what happens is a storm whips up and the wind comes tearing in from this valley that exists on the north end of the Sea of Galilee and it works like a funnel. And the whole sea just kind of turns into a torrent. It kicks up big waves and lots of wind. And it was concerning for the disciples because they knew their boat wasn't ready for that on a good day, much less the middle of the night. And there's 12 men in a fishing boat that's flat-bottomed where the sides maybe come up two feet off the water if it's empty. No outboard motor. Middle of the night, it's dark. It wasn't where they wanted to be. Those boats were built flat and shallow for two or three guys to go out with fishing nets and haul the fish into the side of the boat without having to pull them up a big wall. They weren't built to take on waves and wind. You have to think the disciples are going, what's going on? What is he doing? Where is he? Why are we here? So the first thing we've got to ask is, was the storm a surprise for Jesus? No way. And because this is in the Bible, we have to take a moment and say, where do I fit into this passage, right? You and I say, where where, where is this about me? 
here's where it is. Jesus is not surprised by the storm that you're facing. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, you might feel all alone. might be because you made some bad decisions, one bad choice, took a wrong turn in life. You're in the middle of a storm. You don't know how to get out. It's not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew what was going to happen with the disciples. It was not a surprise for Him. He needed time to rest and pray, and it was about to give Him another opportunity to do another miracle. The storms in your life are not a surprise to Jesus. Verse 25, about 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. There's a lesson in this for us. 3 o'clock in the morning, that is as middle of the night as the middle of the night can be. It says, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. Jesus was setting up what my dad would call a teachable moment. These guys were all ears. They were in the last place they wanted to be in the least, least comfortable thing that they could be in in this vote, in this boat. This is a very teachable moment. And Jesus knows it. They're fighting a storm with strong wind and with waves, and Jesus comes walking toward them through the middle of all of it. He didn't just suddenly appear. He could have, but he didn't. He could have calmed the sea and walked along nice, calm water. He didn't. He comes walking toward them in the middle of the waves and in the middle of the wind. Sometimes the storm doesn't go away when we want it to, and Jesus is there anyway. Sometimes the teachable moment happens in the storm, not by taking us out of the storm. So Jesus walks on water. This Jesus that takes naps through storms in boats and who calms the seas, now he's walking on water. And I have to imagine that part of what Jesus is trying to teach them was what the angels tell us every time they show up in the New Testament. What's the first thing they say? Fear not. And I have to believe in Jesus there was a little bit of that. Because if God is for you, then who can possibly be against you? What can possibly prosper against you? No one and no thing, because God is in the business of doing what is impossible for us. Jesus could have calmed the storm. He could have silenced the waves. He could have stopped the wind. And he could have come out in another boat. But he didn't do that. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the water... Their response was not, He's here! He's awake! He didn't forget us! In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! Tells me the disciples are more like you and I and a lot less like Jesus. We think of them as these amazing holy guys that as soon as Jesus called their name, they were instantly changed forever. No, they see Jesus, their Master, their Lord, their Savior, the guy that they've been spending time with that they'd seen do incredible miracles that can't be explained away, walking on the water, and their immediate assumption is, be scared, it's a ghost. I wonder if what they were really thinking is, it's a ghost that's coming to take us to heaven. This is the end of the road. It's one of the things that they would have believed. You see, Jesus, this guy that they've already seen do miracles that, that defy logic, that, that completely exist outside of explanation, not science, not reason, nothing can explain them. And Jesus is walking to them on the water. And their only reaction is, it's got to be a ghost because people don't do that. It is impossible for us, but it is not impossible for God. And in this instance, at this moment, this is how God chose to show up. But Jesus spoke to them at once against the, again the urgency. 
Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he says. Take courage. I'm here. I love that phrase. It goes back in the Greek to a, a phrase that we learned in the Old Testament when Moses went to God and Moses says, OK, look, if you're just going to get mad at me and I've got to go to Pharaoh, who am I going to tell him sent me? He maybe he knows who I am, but I don't have any authority. God says, tell him I am sent you. I got to imagine Moses crinkled up his nose and his brow and looked at God. And I can only imagine God saying, I am fill in the blank, Moses. I'm everything. I am all you could possibly hope for. I am. And the phrase that Jesus uses there is so awesome. Take courage. I am here. God is here with you. The great I am. In the midst of their exhaustion, in the midst of their struggle with the storm, in the midst of their fear, all of the chaos that they're surrounded by, the, jo- the voice of Jesus along with the person of Jesus appears and says, Don't be afraid, guys. Take courage. I'm here. Take courage. Don't be afraid. He's telling them to have courage because of His presence. The reason that they can have courage is because Jesus is there. The same is true for us. Our courage comes from our relationship with and our trust in the very real presence of Jesus in our life. The presence of Jesus in our life, not pretend, not make believe, but in reality. That's what gives us the sure and certain hope of salvation, that everything will be okay. Have courage. Jesus says, I'm here. Psalm 28, 7 says, the Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Songs of thanksgiving, you would expect the disciples would have started singing. He's here. Jesus is here. Everything's going to be okay. You'd think that would be the response of these disciples that knew Him so well. But it wasn't. We've got this thing on our wall. We say, God is at work. We truly believe that. Around here, in you, in our communities, in our world, we truly believe that He is. We see it all the time. All the time. The thing is, the trouble with us is, like the disciples, we don't see that God is at work in the storms. We think God must have ignored us or left us alone or maybe I did something wrong and God doesn't care about me right now. But what we see in this passage that is so important is God not only cares, but God is present in the midst of the storm. Jesus didn't stop the storm. All of the action that we're going to look at happens while the waves are crashing against the boats and the wind is blowing. God is at work in the storms. So often, though, we look to God to stop the storm, to take the storm somewhere else, to to save us from the storm. We don't want to go through the storm. We want God to rescue us from the storm. But the fact of the matter is, most often our growth and the best lessons that we learn in faith come as a result of God leading us through the storms, not in allowing us to avoid them. This would be a very different passage if Jesus had calmed the water and and Peter had walked on a calm sea. Somebody would say, ah, the shoreline just extended. It was a sandbar. Jesus showed up and the storm raged on. Out of the blue, verse 28, Peter calls to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. What what Peter says in the Greek is, command me. You give me the order to come to you, Jesus, if it's you. What he's really saying, 
Prove it. You say to take courage, you say that it's you, Jesus, but prove it. I mean, what are the other possibilities that he could be thinking of? Some other person figured out how to walk on water? Maybe it really was a ghost? Come on, Peter. It it almost sounds like that fear of that angel that they're afraid is going to take him to heaven is what they really believe this person is. If it's really you. You don't say if to somebody you know. You don't question if to somebody who's a friend of yours. If is a test word. If is a word that we use when we're not so sure and we want someone to prove themselves to us. If is a doubt and questioning word. If is one that we're not so sure about someone and we're not not ready to, to just put everything on the line for them, we start with if. It lacks faith. If is not a word that is rooted in faith. If is a word that is rooted in doubt. The thing that we need to pay attention to is when Peter says, if it's really you, Jesus. Then he says, you know, Jesus command me to come to you. So Jesus is going to do that. Jesus is like, I I can do that, not a problem. It's significant because so often in life we expect Jesus to be obedient to our wants. The Bible says to pray about it. You ask not because you have not because you ask not. Whatever I want, Jesus is going to give me. We expect Jesus to bless us even in our selfishness. We expect Jesus to bless us even in our lack of obedience. We expect Jesus to give us whatever we want that's completely separate to what the Bible makes clear God wants for us. We expect Jesus to bless our plans when our, when our prayer should be to trust in God's plan That God will work to fulfill His purposes in our lives rather than us asking God to fulfill our plans and purposes. And then we've got to be clear about something else. Peter's not looking to be a part of a miracle. Peter's looking to be saved from his fear. Peter's looking to get out of that boat into anything else that he has a possible hope of getting away from this storm. There is terror in his mind of facing this storm in the little boat that they're in. And what Peter wants is for Jesus to change his circumstances. And so often when we pray in the midst of a storm, all we want is Jesus to pray uh, to change our circumstances. We don't usually pray, God, help me grow through this. Help me know you better. Help me to have a deeper faith. Help me to trust you more. He's speaking out of fear and desperation. And there's a very important lesson in this. Here's the thing. This doesn't say this in the Bible, but I believe the sum total of part of the Bible does make this statement. God is not moved by our desperation. God is not called to attention because we have a desperation prayer. God is moved by our devotion and our dedication to Him. That's what moves God. Peter at this point is just desperate. So Jesus does something really interesting. My guess is he looked directly at Peter and he said, yes, come. He commands Peter to come out on the water. See, Jesus will always be there for us. Jesus will always welcome us. Jesus is never going to say, you know what, you're going to need to go stay by your own for a while. You need to get out on your own and, and give me a break. Jesus had the break. He went and prayed. And now he's here with the disciples when they need him. It's another opportunity for a lesson that Jesus has to teach the disciples of what God can do and what we cannot. So when Jesus says, come, it's not an invitation. It's not giving him permission. It's a command. It's Peter, come. 
You want to come to me, Peter? Then come to me. It's a command. And so often we take the commands of Jesus and we make them suggestions. But he's telling Peter, come and walk to me, Peter. See, Jesus knows that Peter and the other disciples are stressed out. They're tired. It's been a long night. It was a long day before. Feeling the weight of this storm that they're powerless against has got them exhausted. Matthew 11:28 says, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, Peter, come to me. I'll take care of it. I'll give you a break. I'll give you rest. So the Bible says, Peter went over the side of the boat and he walked on the water toward Jesus. Peter steps out of the boat. There's a little bit of faith and a whole lot of fear. Peter steps out of the boat. He begins to move in desperation and in faith. And I have to wonder if he didn't have one of those one arm behind him taking baby steps toward Jesus things. But the point is, he got out of the boat and he started to walk and he got a good distance away. And in that moment, Peter walked on water in the power of God. The storm continued to rage. It didn't say the wind went down or the waves stopped. The storm continued to rage and Peter walked on water for one glorious, history-making, unbelievably impossible, incredible God-did-it moment. Peter walked on water. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. About the time Peter got far enough away from the boat that he couldn't just lean back and jump in again. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He took his eyes off of Jesus and he said, the waves are still rocking. The wind is still blowing. I can't do this. I can't walk on water. And he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. Save me, Lord. Despite the physical presence of Jesus standing on that water, Peter lost faith. Imagine how much harder it is who don't have Jesus right in front of us to keep our faith. And yet God encourages us to do just that. Peter once again became terrified. He began to sink because his faith wasn't focused on Jesus. His faith was in what he could and couldn't do, and he knew he couldn't walk on water. With Jesus, he was able to walk on water. On his own, all he could do was to sink like a stone. Once again, in desperation, Peter calls out to Jesus and he says, Save me, Lord. Peter is the master of the last-ditch desperation, all-out-of-options 911 prayer. We've all done them. We've all done the same thing. Peter has this moment where he's literally doing what he couldn't do on his own, and he looked and he focused on what he couldn't do, not on what Jesus was doing. Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes Peter. Psalm 34, 6, In my desperation I prayed and the Lord listened and He saved me from all of my troubles. And so what did Jesus do? He immediately, again the urgency, He immediately reached down and He grabbed him. And in that moment, He looks at Peter. And i got to imagine, Peter is all the way in the water still. And He says, You have so little faith. Why did you doubt? I have to imagine in that moment... Peter didn't hear the waves anymore. He didn't feel the water splashing on him. The wind in that moment in time ceased to exist. 
All he heard was the voice of Jesus. And at this point, it could have been the quietest, most gentle whisper in the history of words. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? He made it clear to Peter, it wasn't Peter that he was expecting to do it. It was was him. Jesus knew that he could. Those words had to have just stung. I desperately do not want to hear Jesus say, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? I don't want to hear Jesus say that. I don't want to hear it as a, as a husband, a father, a pastor, a, a man, a person. I, I don't want to hear those words. And it's interesting, over time I have learned that there are people who are going to doubt me. That's okay. I've learned to be okay with people not liking me, with them disagreeing and talking poorly about me. I, I guess kind of what I've come to is that's a part of being a pastor. There are just some people who will do some things. But I don't want Jesus ever to look at me. And asked, how come I have so little faith in him? What, why, why did you doubt me? You were never supposed to do it in the first place, Steve. I was. I, I never called you to accomplish that. I just called you to be there and get it started. I didn't call you to finish it. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, you have so little faith? He didn't ask the question. He didn't even say why. It was a statement. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? There's no way you can answer that question without starting, because I. Because I couldn't do it on my own, because I didn't know, because I wasn't sure. And Jesus' whole answer is going to be, I know. That's why I'm here. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? That's a stinger. We're talking about this capital campaign that we're in, and why, and why, why would we... Try to do anything more. We've got a nice room to be in, right? This, this is good enough. Why are we dreaming so big for God? Because it's about God who can accomplish it because it's for God. It isn't for you or me or, or any of us. It's for, for people that we haven't met that God is going to call to this place in the future and us having a, a place for them. We have got faith that God has called us to something and that He will work in us and with us and through us to accomplish that purpose. Otherwise, it's going to be, why did you have so little faith? Let's bring this one home, how about? The world that you live in is the same world that I live in, and it's gotten really good at something. It's gotten good at storms. It's gotten good at creating storms and noise. It's gotten really good at creating distractions through the media and politicians, through all kinds of world events that we're not really sure whether they happen in the way that we're told or not, like pandemics and vaccines and supply chain disruptions and food shortages and toilet paper and paper towel shortages. Talk of digital currency and your money's not going to be worth anything anymore. Wars here and all over the globe. Threats of changes of all kinds. Losses, spy balloons, UFOs. Anything that will get us to fear or be distracted. The world loves for us to be distracted. To take our eyes off of Jesus. See, there was that moment, though, that Peter walked on the water and he stepped into what is humanly impossible because his eyes were only on Jesus. That moment, the very moment that Peter took notice of the waves and he paid attention to the wind again and he worried about what was around him, he realized he couldn't do this on his own and all that he focused it on was his inability. He lost sight of God's ability. 
He lost sight of what was possible for God in favor of what was impossible for him. But what is impossible for us is just another day of living in what's possible for God. So are your eyes focused on Jesus? Are you caught up in fear? Does the news and everything around you have your attention because they're creating storms and distractions and and you're so busy gathering up all that information, trying to figure out what's right and real and going to happen next that you've forgotten to put your hope and trust in Jesus? Because that's what happened to Peter. See, storms, they can be just as dangerous for us as they were for those disciples. We can get caught in them without even knowing they're going to happen. They cause us to take our eyes off of Jesus. That's the first thing they do. They cause us to take our eyes off of His promises, off of our hope of heaven, who we are and whose we are and where our hope really comes from. Storms can cause poor decisions, falling to temptation, unnecessary fear, doubt, loss or lack of faith. Because storms get us to focus on our immediate situation and what surrounds us in the moment, not on our eternal future. Storms get us to worry about what's happening right now. And in doing that, they get us to forget about where it is that we're really going and who has us. Remember, the Bible says He'll never leave you and never forsake you. Jesus is always right there. It doesn't matter how big the storm is. No matter how alone or lonely or helpless or impossible things might feel to you, there's no way in the world you're going to possibly get through this. Jesus is there. What is impossible for you is is possible for God. What kind of storms? Well, it might be the things that we hear that we can't do anything about on the news. Your storm might be financial. Maybe it's a mess because you made some bad decisions and you got caught in a pickle. And you're convinced you can't get out by yourself and you probably can't because what got you there is what you keep on doing. But with God's help, you know, you might be on the brink of a breakthrough but not by continuing who you've been and what you've been doing. Maybe, maybe the storm is loneliness for you. Maybe your storm is caused by not such good-for-you friends, a troubled marriage. Jesus is still there with you. The question is, are you focusing on those people or are you focusing on Him? Maybe mourning a loss of a loved one you couldn't have imagined ever being able to live without before they died. Your grief might feel like a storm of emotions. But you know, the Bible says God can be your comfort if we look for Him. This passage is so relevant to our lives all the time because we live in a world of storms. Some that we create, some that are thrown at us. It's why it's so important. It's why the Bible talks about the importance of having the Holy Spirit in us. Because what the Holy Spirit does The Holy Spirit does for us what we can't do for ourselves. God's Holy Spirit brings order out of chaos. He brings peace in the midst of trials. He brings calm to the storms. When we're focusing on those things, we're all going to be living in chaos. But see, God is still in the business of doing what's impossible for us. And God brings order out of the chaos that is our lives. And God is at work and we are the ones who are better for it. Always. Better because of Him. 
Romans 5, starting in verse 3. We can rejoice too that when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. That right there encapsulates this whole passage. God is there. God is with us. Jesus is with you and He is still in the business of saving people from storms. God is with you and for you. And what feels like something that's impossible in your life might really be an opportunity for you to have a front row seat for God to show you how powerful He is. question is, will we be teachable? Will we learn from these momentary storms and grow through them? Or are we just going to fight them and complain about them? See, God is at work for you. And so the question is, are you living in faith for Him? Are your eyes and your thoughts and your time focused on the fears and distractions and the storms all around you? Do you constantly have your television and your radio and whatever else it is giving you more information and more information and more information and it just feeds the storm? Or are your eyes and faith firmly focused on Jesus as your Savior? The storms are always going to be there. Always. So will Jesus. Which one are you going to give your attention to? Let's pray. God, thank You for this passage. Thank You for Peter. For his fear, for his faith, for his willingness to call out Jesus and, and respond God, thank You even as we look back in history that He faltered, that He, that he began to fall back into the water because, God, that's so much of our lives. That so much describes our faith walk. And if we were honest, we would be saying, save us, Lord, all the time. But so often we try to save ourselves. We try to fix our problems. We try to do more of the wrong thing rather than to stop doing the wrong thing and lean into You. And that, God, is the message of Scripture. Over and over and over, You give us examples of people who try to do it on their own and who You're there for. And over and over and over, You save. God, thank You for Jesus, for what He did for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit that allows us to become people of faith, to live in that faith, to become more and more like Jesus because, God, that's what we want. We want to be people who, like the disciples, become less and less like ourselves and more and more like Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Finally, here's the last thing I got to say before the last song. Noise, fear, distractions, storms, always going to be present. Sometimes we create them because of bad decisions. Sometimes we create them because of wrong decisions. Sometimes we are thrown into the middle and they have nothing to do with us other than that we've got to deal with them. They're always going to be present, but so is Jesus. Jesus will always be present. Storms, as we learn today, are an opportunity for you to have a front row seat to the power of God at work in your world. The question is, are you going to focus on the storm or are you going to focus on your Savior? Are you going to focus on all the noise that's going on around you? Or are you going to focus on Jesus? That's your choice.